for the past um, few Sundays, we've been looking at the book of Psalms, um, and we've been going through cert- certain themes in, in the book of Psalms. And today we're going to look at um, this world that we live in and the trouble that um, will come our way and um, our response to that trouble and who God is in the midst of that trouble. And so this psalm, this particular psalm was penned by um, King David. Uh, we're not exactly sure um, which um, event in his life triggered this psalm, but it's, it, it reads similar to Psalm 3. Um, it reads, um, Psalm 3 was a psalm that David um, uh, wrote or, 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 or spoke out when he was fleeing and escaping from his son, Absalom, during the rebellion of Absalom. Um, and so this could have been written when uh, David was on the run from Absalom. Also, it could have been written um, at the time when he was on the run from King Saul, who was after his life. Either way, when we read this psalm, we see that David is in a dreadful place. He's in a place where he's fearing for his life and fearing for his safety. And he's been conspired against. And so we'll read Psalm um, 64, 1 to 10. If you have your Bible, you can um, open and, and turn, turn the page with, with me as I read. If not, you, it's going to come up on the screen. It says in Psalm 64, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrow, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and the heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues, turned against them. All who see them wag their heads. Then all mankind's fears, they tell God, they tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you because in your word is the solutions to all that life brings our way. Your word is truth. Your word is a lamp to our faith, feet and a light unto our path. We just pray, Lord, that there will be faith awaken in this building today as we hear your word, that we will trust in you as our place of refuge. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. And so, we see David here describing what he's going through. David describing in in very visual, graphic details of the things happening around him. We see in verses 1, we see... His life is a threat. We see him saying, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. In verses 2, he speaks of a plot among wicked, a throng of evildoers. In, in, in some translation, it says uh, an insurrection, a conspiracy. So you have a group of people who are plotting against David's life. And we see in verses 3 and 4, we see the type of weapons being used. Words, their tongues used like swords. Arrows shooting at him. We see what they're doing. They're, 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 they're concocting a plan to bring David down. 
They're laying traps for him, looking for him, thoroughly searching for him like a hunter looks for his prey. And this is why we see David start the psalm by saying, hear my complaints, O God. And one lesson we can take from David and, and his life was that whenever he was in, in trouble, he would pray to God. Sometimes it would be a very short line. Like when he was running from Absalom, he said, Oh Lord, confound the counsel of Ahithophel. That's, Oh Lord, break the counsel of Ahithophel. Very short prayer. Very powerful and effective prayer because that's exactly what God did. And sometimes he had longer prayers. He always sought the face of God whenever he was in trouble. Now, for some of you who are keen readers, you might spot David saying, in my complaint. You might say to yourself, why is David complaining? Doesn't the Bible say to us that we shouldn't complain? In Numbers um, 11, 1 to 3, it says, and it happened, the people who were like, who were like those who complain of hardship in the hearing of God, and God became angry, and the fire of God burned amongst them. And it consumed the edge of the camp. This was in the time of the Exodus. When they were in the wilderness, they complained against God. And God was angry at them. Philippians 2.14 in the New Testament says, Do all things without grumbling and complaining. And I said, what? what? It's in, in my complaint. David is complaining. Shouldn't he do the Christian thing? Keep a mouth closed, a stiff upper lip, and just take it like a man? Isn't that what we're supposed to do as Christians when trouble comes? But if that's how you think about how we endure through times of trouble, then you've got the wrong end of the stick. Because what the Bible really tells us is that in Psalm 50, 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. And it says again in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. So you have to call on him. You have to cry out to him. You have to cast your anxiety on him. He's saying, call on me. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. God has no problem with his people calling out to him. If you are in pain, if you are going through a, a terrible time, he's happy for you to come to him and say, I'm in pain. I'm heartbroken. I'm suffering here. He says, make your request known to him. Let your burdens be known to him. Your anxieties, what's really pressing on your heart, bring it to him. We, we heard this morning, it was brought out so very helpfully, um, just, just as we were closing out our, our time of worship, that God wants to answer us. We should come to him. He wants his people not to point the finger of blame at him, but he wants his people to open up their hands, saying, Father, help me. Don't say to him, God, why have you allowed this thing to happen to me? But saying, God, this has happened to me. I need help. That's what it means. So when 
David was saying, yeah, I've come in complaints. It's not saying I've come grumbling. It's not saying I've come saying, why have you let this thing happen? It's said, I've come because of X, Y, Z. And these people are plotting and these people want to kill me and these people want to shoot the arrows at me. I, I'm, I'm in trouble here. I remembered in, in 2016, I, I was, 2016 was a very monumental year in my life because I was going to get married in 2016, uh, about seven years ago, actually. It's going to be this, this month. And I, you know, we were going through, because I was working in the oil and gas industry, and the oil and gas market was very turbulent. And quite a few of my friends had lost their jobs. And I was the next person on the firing line. And my company, a very good company, they tried to hold on to me. And eventually, you know, it was my head next on the chopping block. And I remembered, and it, it, it eventually happened. And I remembered, I think, why did you let this happen to me, God? And I remember saying that, and I, I said, but I, I serve you faithfully. I, I give of my energy, my time, my wealth to you. Like, I, I serve you. I, shouldn't I be protected from this? I remember saying that. I was so close that year also to being in the midst of me looking for another job, to being essentially um, going to Cameroon um, for a job offer, which I had already received. But somehow, somehow, it turns out that was a scam to take my money. <laughs> so I was basically going to get married. I was being made jobless, and there was a bunch of scammers trying to take whatever money I had left. And I remember, I was like, what's going on here? It's so easy to when calamities come, to turn our finger and say, why have you allowed this to happen to me, oh God? This is, this is so innate in man. Even atheists, atheists that don't believe in God, they say, I don't believe in God. And why don't you believe in God? Because it allows bad things to happen. That doesn't make any sense. If it doesn't exist, how can you allow bad things to happen? <laughs> to blame is so inherent in man. In the garden, man sinned against God. And God says, why have you done this? He says, oh, it was the woman you gave me. <laughs> I was on my own. And he brought the woman along. We blame even God <laughs> for what we do. And one of the greatest traps we fall into as Christians is to think that now that I have come to Christ, now that I am saved, now that I am one of his people, now that he is my shepherd, he's going to shield me protect me, and nothing bad will ever happen to me. And we have this thought that being a Christian is equal to our lives going from perfect to perfect and all the things we need and everything that we, we say we, we want, we get it. But Christ reminds his disciples a few hours before he was executed. And this is to bring it back to Christian reality, which is, he says to his followers in, the, in John 16, in this life, you will have many troubles. That's Christ. In this life, you will have not one trouble, not two troubles. You'll have many troubles. And these troubles come in so many different ways. People tend to think trouble as maybe just one thing. But so many different ways. Troubles can come in the, in, 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 in the form of ill health, long-term chronic disease. It could be in the form of broken relationships, broken marriages. 
It could be in the form of uh, disappointment. I was, I was looking forward to that job. I thought that job was mine. I prepared for that interview. I'm qualified. I did the work, but I didn't get it. That's a, that's a form of trouble. And sometimes troubles come in the, in the form of natural disasters. The earth and the solar system not functioning how we would like it to function. There was a, an article I was reading earlier this week. It says the sun, the, the sun is partying like it's 2002. I don't know how that works. The number of observed sunspots on our home star last month was the highest for almost 21 years. It is one of the clearest signs yet we are fast approaching the sun's chaotic peak known as solar maximum. And that it will be far more extreme than initially predicted. If the sun is getting excited, we're going to feel it on Earth. Even the sun brings its own troubles to us. Some troubles will come because you follow Christ. You've come to him, and now you're a Christian. Now there are certain things you wouldn't do because you follow Christ. That means there will be troubles that come from that. There are people in our congregation that come from other countries who, in those countries, it's very explicit. If you're a Christian, you are shunned by society. You're denied rights. You are banned. You are persecuted, and sometimes you're even killed. And in our country, sometimes people have been overlooked promotions. It's not quite the same thing because you don't die necessarily if you're overlooked by promotion. But it's one degree of persecution. That's another form of trouble. And we pray that in the West, we don't get to the point where we are being killed for our faith in Christ. But one thing Christ promises his disciples is in this life. It's not so much of a promise. It's more of a, a, a statement of fact, more of a reminder. This, this is what's going to happen. You will have many troubles in this life. And so far, so good. Are you guys feeling <laughs> elevated? And you came to church this morning, you're like, wow, just giving to the Lord now. Now I said I'm going to have troubles. Thanks, Lord. Yeah, come, Lord Jesus. So we, we need to have a realism about our walk in life. This is what I'm trying to draw here. We cannot be like those sort of, you know, happy, clappy, everything is going to be lovely. There's not going to be any troubles. There will be trouble. We're talking about recessions and inflation and all these things. This is the reality. I don't, we don't know what's going to happen next month. We don't know what next year is going to be like. But we have some promises to lean on. And we need to say, what does God say about these troubles that are coming? There are two things that we have to keep in mind. One of those things was mentioned very, very helpfully by Yorksy. Um, uh, this morning when we watched that video. And the first thing is that God is the ultimate judge. God is the ultimate judge. And it is he who will avenge his children. This is very important. And the second thing is God is our ultimate refuge, our place of security, shelter, and serenity in times of trouble. Now, both these things require trust. I'm going to explain a little bit what it means by us to trust God 
by saying, you are, you are the ultimate judge. We see in Psalm 64, from verses 7 to 9, we see that all this trouble has come to David. And what happens? We see this reversal happening. In, in verse 7, it says, but God shoots his arrow at them. So they are shooting arrow at David. And what does God do? He shoots his own arrow at them. And they bring their swords, their mouth, their accusations, their words like swords against David. And what do we see? And it says that their tongues turned against them. So the weapons that the world is bringing against David and against God's people, God is turning it against them. What does that say? God is the one that does the judge. He is the one that does the judge and he is the one that avenges his children. We're reminded in scriptures in Romans 12, 19 to 21. And that should come up on the screen if you, if you don't have your Bible. Paul is quoting a verse from Deuteronomy. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, in the midst of the persecution that will come to us, it could be at work, you have an overbearing boss, someone with a higher rank than you, who is letting you know they have power and authority over you, and is misusing that power and authority over you. Now, you could, you could do two things. You could take matters into your own hands. You could slam the door in their face as they're coming in and say, oh, I didn't see you there. <laughs> if you know they have high cholesterol, you could pour extra sugar in their tea. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be classified as murder or, uh, you know. You could do some of these things. You could, you, could, you could use your own means to get back at them. But what does the Bible say here? It says that vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Those are loaded words. It's like, this is my property. Don't, this is what I do. You can't do it as well as I do it. But what you should do is what? Do good. When it's time for coffee, you, I'll, I'll, get some, I'll get some coffee for you. When we've all run out of water, I'll get some water for you. What do you want to eat? I'll, I'll, I'll buy some food for you. It's, it's counterintuitive. But God says that, do this. You focus on doing good. And by the way, you're not doing this with it. I'll buy tea for you. I'll buy coffee for you because I know coal is going to land on your head. <laughs> That's not what it's saying here. It's not saying doing it with a motive of malice. Genuinely help them. I'll give you a good way to help someone. If someone has pushed you to the wall, before you take them to disciplinary at work or report them or anything like that, the first thing you do, you take them to God. And the first thing you do is say, God, have mercy on this person. God, have mercy on this person. It's a very effective tool. And I was driving into work this morning. I didn't know this was going to be part of my preach, but it happened this morning. I was driving to work this morning, and then the guy that was behind me bypassed for whatever reason. I, don't, I, I wasn't driving rough or anything like that, um, but he bypassed me. And he gave me quite a nasty sign as I was, as I was driving. And, and I was just like, what is this about? I got out of the car, and I just said, Lord, have mercy on him and arrest him. <laughs> oh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean arrest him in the form of a, a, you know, a police officer <laughs> catching him. But 
I, I mean, Lord, get a grip of his heart. Yes. And the reason why, I was, I was, I was, a bit, I was struggling with that because it, it was kept playing in my mind. And, and it's a very powerful tool to pray for our enemies. Because once I've gone to someone to say, God, have mercy on this person, it becomes difficult for me to slam the door in their face. It becomes easier to say, can I buy you something to drink? I've just, I've taken you to God. And when you're in the hands of God, it's a terrible place to be. That's what the Bible says. It says in Psalm 64, verse 10, that we're reminded that in all our troubles, we are to take refuge in God. We are to take refuge in God. Psalm 91, verses 1 says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91 is a brilliant psalm. Some might call it psalm of protection. It's a brilliant psalm that describes God like a, a huge bird that covers his, his children with his wings. It talks about God protecting us from the dangers that come at day and the, the dangers that come at night. It talks about God protecting us from slipping and falling, saying that God is going to send his angels to protect us. It says God is our refuge. He's the one that we place our trust in. But what does trusting in God look like? And I, this morning I've been so blessed. Um, and I, I could have just been there just listening to what... Has been, has been coming this morning because it's almost like it's all building up. The same message over and over again. I wasn't aware of what Greg was going to bring this morning. I just, I, you know, we, we never spoke about it, nothing. Um, but I, I, I had this, um, this to share from uh, the life of a, a Christian who lived in the Victorian time, um, George Muller, who was responsible for looking after over 10,000 um, orphaned children in the UK. And there's a quote from uh, one of the biographers written about him. It, it, it goes like this. He tells one story about receiving daily bread, bread quite re literally. Sunday, 27th November, 1831. Funds were again low, down in fact to two and a half, um, I think it's shillings, or, or D. What does D stand for? What? Pence. You can tell my age, right? Um, Muller had prayed a number of times about this as the cash was steadily reduced. After dinner, he said again the Lord's Prayer with special emphasis on the daily bread sections, meaning they had actually needed bread for that very evening, though he knew that even if money somehow appeared, all the shops would be closed on a Sunday. That was back then when Sundays, you know, there wasn't economic activities on Sundays. And as he was praying, there was a knock on the door. And a woman came in, and one, one of the poorer members of the congregation who proceeded to offer them some of her own dinner plus five shillings, given her by another local woman, also poorly off, she also brought a large loaf. Thus said Muller triumphantly, the Lord not only literally gave us bread, he also gave us money. Taking stock in the morning of December um, 1831, he noted that they only had 10 shillings in hand. But at the end of that day, what they, that, that had been spent and given away. Thus, he noted, not a single farthing remained. 
But his annual accounts recorded that they had received without a word to anyone. 131 uh, pounds, 18 shillings, and 8D, which is pence. Plus about 20 pounds in goods and services throughout the year. Now, Muller had made up his mind when he came to serve the church that he was not going to receive, take money out of the church's pot and offering. And he did it out of faith. He did it believing that God would provide for him. And what he was supposed to get that year, right, was substantially lesser than what he had received all through the year. And at each point, God provided for him. At each point, God provided for him. What does trusting in God look like? Trusting in God means that first, we must bring God's promise to him in the face of life's challenges. It means whenever there is a challenge, the first thing that comes to our mind, first action we should do is, God, you promised this in your word. Before we go and try and resolve the problem and try and call our friends and try, God, you promised. Let's go to him. That's the first action. In relationship rejections, what do we do? Remind ourselves with the promise of God that he will not leave me or forsake me. When we're faced with lack, we remind ourselves that God will provide to our needs in accordance with his riches in Christ. When we're challenged by bullies and overbearing bosses, we remind ourselves that if God is for me, who can be against me? When we're feeling dejected and, and down and low, we remind ourselves that God, who did not spare his son, will grant me everything I need. When I'm feeling at my wit's end, I remember myself, I remind myself that in Christ, in God, I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves me. When dealing with a wayward child, we remind God, we remind him, he says, children are a reward from you. And it says in your word that your gifts are irrevocable. We take that child to God. We take refuge in God through his word. We combat the arrows of the enemy first with the word of God. Not because we're trying to play this sort of game of um, positivity and having a positive mindset. It's not a bad thing to have a positive mindset, to be optimistic. But we're doing this because whose report are you going to believe? Are you going to believe what the world says, what the enemy says, or are you going to believe the word of the Lord first? That's why we do this. There's one thing I read through scripture is that God loves to be challenged by his own word. He loves to be challenged by his own word. We make God our refuge in the morning when we come to him in prayer. We come, we wake up out of our, bread, of our bed, we, we, we have our shower, we do everything. We go to work. We discuss with our, our team. We do everything and we don't think about God. What does that say about what we think about God? God says, when you wake up, give me thanks for the life that I give to you first. And then ask me for wisdom for the day. That's how we take refuge in God. When you get to work and you've been given a task and you feel like you can do the task, say, God, give me wisdom. Because your word says that if anyone lacks wisdom, God will give them just ask. In taking God at his word, in going to him, in praying to him, we make him our refuge. We make God our refuge when we take a portion of what we get, our wealth, our salary. 
we take a portion as offering. And we, we've, start, we, we've done that beautifully this morning where we, we, we've all said, we're going to give. Those who have lots and those who have little, we're going to give. Why? Because our ultimate security is not in our wealth. We have to remind ourselves. I have to remind myself of this. What does it mean to give God of our wealth? It means to give out of faith. It means to give out of faith. I said to my wife when we were talking about giving, we said, I said, I said are we giving because we can afford it? Or are we giving out of faith? Like, you know the measure of faith that you have. You know, you know what is faith. You know what is stepping out into faith. Right? When we give to God, why is that? Because he says he'll provide for us in his word. He's our good shepherd. He's the one that says that I look after the birds of the field. I look after the flowers of the field. And I care much more for you than I do for them. We remind ourselves he's the one that provides for us. How he's going to do it, I don't know. <clears throat> Would he do it 10 minutes just before we need the money? An hour? As we heard this morning, literally seconds? We don't know. But we will say, what? Well, I trust you. I will follow you. It is difficult in our, in our society to, when we're surrounded with, relatively speaking, plentiful to give out of faith. But we have to remind ourselves, am I giving out of convenience or am I giving out of faith? This is what it means to put our refuge in God. Christ says that do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth and thieves break into steel, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because there are people who are very, very wealthy in our world today. They have more money than they will ever run out of. And they can't pay or find a doctor that would heal, like, look or cure them of the ill health they have. So all that wealth they have, they can't even use it to, to, to solve their problem. Wealth doesn't necessarily mean security. We have to remind ourselves of this. Our security is found in God. And that is what we communicate when we give to God, that you are my security. You are my, you are my ultimate pension. You are my ultimate insurance policy. That's what I'm giving to you because it's not in my power. It's not in my wealth. It's not in how much more I can make, but it's in what you provide. We have to remind ourselves of this. And then we see in the very last verse of uh, Psalm 64, verse 10, it says, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let the upright in heart exalt. We see it says, let the righteous one, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. The only person that can take refuge in God is a righteous person. Is a righteous one, as it says here. Let the righteous one rejoice in him. What does that mean, to be righteous? It means to be in right standing with God. It means to be perfect as God is perfect. And if I, if I ask myself this question, if I look through my life, have I been perfect all my life? When, you, when we talk about God, God is not, God doesn't operate the way we operate, where we kind of, we kind of look at our life and say, well, have I done more good than I've done bad? God operates by a perfect standard. 
So if you were an accountant here and you had a ledger and everything was green, 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 and you had one line of red, that if you're dealing with God, that entire account is defunct because it's perfect. He works by a perfect scales. And it's only the perfect one that can take refuge in God. In John 16, shortly before his death, Jesus says some very critical words to his disciples that, that got me thinking about, I was thinking about righteous, righteous, what, what is, why, why righteous? Jesus says in John 16, 5 to 11, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said this things to you, sorrow filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I go away. If I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will do three things. He'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You see, if you live your life not trusting in Christ, not believing in him, that is ultimate sin. Why? Because he's the source of life. You don't exist without him. He gives you life and gives you everything you enjoy and you turn your back on him by not believing in him. That is sin. That is like your parents loving you and raising you up and everything and you just act like they don't exist. That is sin. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit comes to convict us with. And the second thing, the Spirit of God convicts the world of is righteousness. Why? Because I go to the Father. And this is, the one, this is why I kind of set it on the bed. It's righteousness. What does righteousness have to do with going to the Father? What is, what is the relationship there? In Psalms 24, 3 to 5, it says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul, to vanity or sworn deceitfully, who has not lifted up his soul to what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? That is, who will go up to God? Who will stand in the presence of God? Only one who has clean hands and pure hearts. Who in this room can say, all my life, my hands have been clean and my heart has been pure? Who can say that? That means... The, 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 the necessary requirement for you to go up to God, to stand in the presence of God, is perfection, righteousness, holiness. But Jesus says that the Spirit of God will convict the world of righteousness. Why? Because I go to the Father. What does this mean that Christ goes to the Father? We know a few hours after these words, he was taken to a tribunal. He was accused of things he didn't do. He was condemned to death and he was beaten mercilessly. He was stripped, hung on a cross and his lifeblood drained out of him and then he was put into a tomb. And then three days later, he rose out of that tomb and then for 40 days, he kept appearing to his disciples in different places. He kept appearing to them and on the last day, there were over 120 of them standing there on the hill as he was talking to them and they just saw him going up and up. And he just, and he went so far up until the clouds covered him. He went up 
to the Father. He ascended to the hill of the Lord. He stands in the presence of God right now. The proof that Christ is the righteous one is that death could not hold him down. Death could not hold him down. The death that holds my ancestors for a thousand years struggled to keep him in the grave for three days. The greatest religions in the world, their leaders all lay where in the grave, in the bosom of death. And here's Christ, ascended to the hill of the Lord. Ascended to the hill of the Lord. He is the righteous one. That's what it says. Come to me. Who else are you going to trust? The guy that's still in the grave? Or the one that has ascended to the highest spots of the heavens? This is why Christ says, those in this world, there'll be many troubles. There'll be many troubles. What is this? I have said this thing to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. A lot of talks about AI today. AI, AI, AI. Real secret behind AI, if you don't know that yet. It's the people who are pushing this thing. They fear the greatest enemy of all, death. Many of them are thinking about how do I extend my life beyond my age, my, my physical. How can I live forever? I've got a little secret for you guys. It's not going to happen. <laughs> death will come. But there is one that conquered the grave, that burst out in glory. And the angels said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's alive. What does this mean? It means that in this world, there will be troubles. What does this say? In me, you have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. And so the question in this room is, where do you want to be? In the world, where there's tribulation, or in him? And he's not saying there's not going to be troubles, but he's saying there will be peace. And I love how Philippians says, it says, peace that surpasses understanding. That means irrational peace. Peace beyond the physical circumstance. That's, that's not natural. You can't work that kind of peace out by yourself. And there might be someone here who says, I, I, I have, I've left God for a long time and I don't know peace in my life. I don't know peace. Christ says, in me, there is peace. And he says, come, try me out. Try, try Christ out. If it doesn't work out, he gives you his permission to live. But come to him first. Come and try if he really is the source of peace. He doesn't say there won't be trouble, but he says that I will give you peace in the midst of your trouble. Now I'm going to invite the band to come as we close up this morning. And I just want everybody here to, to look and just to think about the things we said this morning, just to say, where is my trust in? Am I trusting in my degrees, in my talents, in my earnings? Am I trusting in the things, my experience? Or am I trusting 
in the one who ascended from the grave up to the highest parts of the heavens? Am I trusting in the resurrected Christ? This is what Christ is saying. If you don't know me, this morning is an opportunity. There are opportunities to pray um, in, 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 the, in the corner of the room in front here. And if you want to make Jesus Christ your refuge, this is your opportunity. This is your opportunity. Take it with both hands. His words are true. His words are sure. Father, help us. Help your children to be like infants, to just trust you. Help us to just take you at your word, Lord. And where are the areas in our lives where we are holding and resisting against you, Lord? Convict us, Lord, of those areas. That you may be Lord of those areas. That we may make you our refuge, Lord. We thank you, Lord, because all those who put their trust in you, all those who put their trust in you, you see them through the storm. We thank you because you are faithful. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.